the town one evening and he was walking past some of the finer homes along the main street when he happened to bump into one of his parishioners that he hadn't seen in a while. And uh, this particular man was standing out in front of one of those fine homes and uh, holding an official-looking envelope in his hand that was marked bankruptcy court on the back. Uh, the two of them greeted each other, and, but right away the pastor could see that the man had this depressed air about him, that had this forlorn look on his face, and, and actually uh, seemed almost on the verge of tears. And so the pastor looked at him and said, Friend, what has this world done to you? Well, the fellow pulled himself together and he said, Oh, pastor, the last time that I was at church, you preached on trusting God's word. So when I got home that afternoon, I, I opened the Bible at random and I dropped my finger on a word and that word said oil. So I, so I invested in oil. And boy, did that oil well gush. But, but he's still crying while I was telling the story. So he, he wipes away a tear and he says, and then a month later, I dropped my finger on another word at random, and it said gold. So I invested in gold, and those gold mines just produced and produced. In fact, they made me richer than a Rockefeller. And so by now, the pastor's kind of confused, and he said, now you know better than that. Don't do that anymore. You know that's not how God works, but, but say, if you've been so successful, what's with all the tears and, and the bankruptcy notice? And the man said, well, Pastor, it had worked so well before I decided to try it just one more time to see what would happen. And, and the pastor said, well, what word did you land on this time? The man said, well, Pastor, this time it was two words. Chapter 11. <laughs> I heard somebody moan over there. Was that you, George? <laughs> right. That's not what this guy expected, though, was it? Right. And, and, you know, that's the problem with uh, receiving something on a regular basis, kind of like I was telling the kids. Eventually, we come to expect it, don't we? And our natural tendency is that if we continue to receive a gift long enough and often enough, we sometimes start to think we even deserve it. Uh, we come to view it almost as an entitlement. Uh, and then we feel hurt and, and maybe even angry if we don't receive it any longer or uh, if our circumstances change. And it's the same way with the blessings that God gives us every day. You know, I don't know about you, but I, I don't deserve my beautiful family or uh, the comfortable home that I live in or uh, the clean water that I drink every day or the abundance of food in my pantry or even this great country that I've been born into. But, you know, after receiving those gifts and a multitude of others for years, you can become jaded, right? Uh, you can fail to be grateful. Uh, I, I've come to expect those things. And when even one of them is removed for a short time, even a small one like the electricity goes off for half an hour, uh, or heaven forbid the internet goes down, <laughs> right? I get upset. I forget to be thankful. That's what Vicky says I look like. And I forget to focus my thoughts and my attitudes and my attention on the God who provides every good thing that he graciously allows me to enjoy and, and you know in doing that i forget about my obligation to worship him in whatever circumstance i find myself in that ever happened to anybody now if i were to ask all of you this morning in light of that would you like to develop a thankful heart i, I think all of us would say yes right most people would 
That's why there's uh, hundreds of books and, and tapes and blog posts about the benefits of uh, being thankful and about having an attitude of gratitude. Because I think, you know, every human being, believer or unbeliever, senses that at some level. And, and you know, as a church, as, as Christians, we recognize that it's right to be thankful for God for his blessings. In fact, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but uh, it's one of my favorite prayers in the communion liturgy that says, God our Father is truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise. I, I love the way that sounds and, and I love the sentiment behind it. But you know, for us as believers, it's got to be deeper than sentiment. Uh, it's got to be more than just a set of words. We need to mean it. But before we can do that, we have to understand what it means. What it means if we're to, to be truly thankful and to be genuinely grateful and then able to express those things in worship. Uh, and there's a quote that I read that I think is going to help us kind of frame that idea and launch us into our text today. Uh, a commentator has written, before we jump on the Thanksgiving bandwagon, we need to realize that genuine thankfulness is inextricably bound up with trust. We will never truly trust God until we first truly thank him and we will never be grateful to god for all that we have until we first recognize that we're dependent on him and you know that may be harder than it sounds because by nature we're not trusting creatures are we we are kind of creatures of necessity and too often we tend to trust god only when absolutely necessary only when we're forced to because our problems are bigger than our abilities and the rest of the time we get along just fine on our own and so sadly, if a problem comes up that we can solve by ourselves, we don't always resort to prayer or resort to trusting in God. And by extension, that really stunts our worship because those things are all linked together. And it's only when we come to the end of ourselves and cast ourselves in total dependence on the Lord that we begin to experience the genuine life of praise and of worship and of thanksgiving that's laid out for us in Psalm 33. So if you're following along, look with me, if you will, Psalm 33, verse 1, and the psalmist writes, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as a heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his strength. 
A war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot save. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Your, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. And you know, as we, we look at this or any book, really every author, whether it's secular or religious, has uh, an audience in mind, whether they address them directly or not. And you know, the same is true of today's psalm, because if you notice, the opening line tells us it's written to people that the psalmist addressed as the righteous ones, as the upright that is, it's written to those of us who already know God personally. It's addressed to the church, as it were, and to those who are seeking uh, to please God by living obedient lives. And so I think it's really telling that the author believed that the audience, which is us, needed to be exhorted and encouraged to, to shout for joy to the Lord and to give thanks to the Lord and to sing to Him. Because aren't we supposed to already be doing that anyway? Right? Well, yes, we are. But you know, it never hurts to be reminded, does it? It never hurts to be encouraged and to be motivated, does it? I don't know, how, how many of you guys remember Zig Ziglar? Anybody? Okay. Well, if you don't know who he is, he's a Christian motivational speaker. Vicky and I got to meet him, which was one of the big honors of my life. And he used to say, people will often tell me that motivation doesn't last. And then he said, but I always reply, neither does bathing. That's why we recommend it daily. Right? Motivation doesn't last. And so we need a daily reminder to bring our lives and our needs and our attentions to the Father. Uh, and the, the psalmist tells us that we should do it because in his words, it befits us. It, it suits us. It's, it's appropriate. It's proper. It's just the right thing to do, he says. And I say he because just by way of background, we don't know actually who wrote this psalm. We see it in the, the book sandwiched between two psalms that are marked of David. Uh, and it's been there in that spot uh, under the best Hebrew scholarship of that book since about 250 B.C. So we could probably make the case that he wrote it. But anyway, you know, you might say that if he hadn't written it, he could have. Because David certainly learned the lessons that it lays out, didn't he? And I say that because David was a man of praise. He was a man of thanksgiving. And one of the reasons for that was because the Lord put him in so many situations where every other prop was knocked out from underneath him. And he had to trust in God because God was all he had. But you know, that's not a bad thing. It's like uh, that line from the favorite old hymn, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You know, I don't know about you and, and frameworks like that, but growing up in a lumberyard, I saw a lot of construction sites. And to this day, I still like to walk through houses as they're being framed out. You guys like to do that before they're put up? And see where all the different rooms are going to be and envision how it's going to be laid out and what it's going to be used for. And, you know, there's a lot of hopes that go into frames like that. Hopes for comfort and for safety and for utility and durability but if you've ever lived through or know someone's lived through a house fire, 
you know those hopes can be gone in a flash. And that really is equally true with all of the frames that we erect. You know, we put our hopes sometimes in political framework and, and in party and in public policy. Or we put our hopes in financial frames like 401ks or, or IRAs. We have hope in the healthcare industry to provide us a framework to take care of our medical needs. And some people even construct their own religious frameworks to house their kind of personal ideas of what God is or isn't like to them relative to their own thoughts and their own desires. But you know, today Psalm 33 would have us know that none of those things are sturdy enough to lean our real hope against. None of those things are solid enough to support real faith. The kind of faith that God was developing in King David when he delivered him over and over again. The kind of faith and hope and trust that God nurtured in David in good times and in bad. Uh, until finally, David was so filled up with that kind of faith that uh, it came out in his thinking and in his singing and in his writing and in his acts of worship. They were just flooded with thanksgiving and praise. And with a sense of how small his problems were in comparison to how big his God was. We need to be reminded of that. That's why we read in verse 6 today, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. You know, we talked a little bit last week about the creation story, and the psalmist is kind of hearkening back to that today with this picture of God's power not only to create, but to control what he's created. Like, did you ever try to walk around with a little bit of water in your hands? Right? It's not all that easy to do, is it? It doesn't stay still. It slips through the cracks between your fingers. And if you spill even a little bit of it on the ground, you're not getting it back. But Psalm 33 paints this great image for us of a God so powerful that he can not only control the paths of rivers and streams, but he can just gather up the waters together in a heap, kind of like we used to put up loose hay in the fields back home, or like a, a pile of grain ready to go into a silo. And even at that, the psalmist, with that illusion, might be thinking not only of God's original act of creation, where he gathered the waters together to give boundaries for dry land to appear but he's probably also thinking of the exodus maybe like a reference to god stacking up the waters of the red sea when he brought israel safely through but either way in light of that kind of demonstration of god's divine power don't you think we should stand in awe of him right and then kind of by way of illustration from a greater idea to a lesser we're told that God not only controls nature, but that he directs the paths of nations. That's why we read in verse 10, the Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. I read a, a story earlier this week of a, a newly elected politician who arrived in Washington, D.C., and he was visiting the home of one of the senior senators and the two men were standing out on their back veranda uh, looking out over the Potomac River just as this rotten old log floated by. And the older senator said, you know, Washington, D.C. Is, is kind of a lot like that log out there. 
And the younger man asked, well, how's that, Senator? And the older man said, well, there are probably hundreds of, of bugs and ants and other little creatures crawling around all over that old log as it floats down the river. And he said, I imagine every one of them thinks that he's the one that's steering it. <laughs> right? Probably every one of them thinks he's the one that's steering it. Because, you know, uh, proud men always think that they steer the course of history. But the Bible is clear that God alone sets up and that he alone takes down even the most powerful rulers in history according to his own plan and his sovereign purposes. Whether it was uh, Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus or even Caesar Augustus, God used them to further his purposes and his plan for his chosen people. Now, now of course, at the time, none of those men knew God. And they weren't seeking to follow God. They're just making their day-to-day decisions that they thought would further their own agendas. But behind the scenes, God providentially used their decisions to further his agenda. Right? See, they were responsible for their own decisions, and they'll answer to God for them. But God used those decisions to implement his own counsel and his own plans. Uh, and, you know, you can really see that anywhere in history that you look. But I think nowhere plainer than the most important event to ever impact our planet. And that's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And there's uh, there's a lot of scriptures I could use to show you that from. But I think the maybe the shortest and the most direct is from Acts chapter 4. Where if you remember the story, Peter and uh, John were just let out of prison after having been arrested for preaching the gospel. And they go back to their church to tell them the story of everything that's happened. Uh, And the Bible tells us in Acts 4.24 that when they heard it, in other words, when the the church heard the story, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, now watch this part, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Let that blow your mind for a second. Because you see, these self-centered, proud rulers were responsible for crucifying the Lord's anointed one. They were responsible for crucifying Jesus. They wanted to do it. They planned to do it. They actively participated in the whole process. And yet in doing it, they inadvertently carried out God's eternal plan of redemption. Right, Frustrating the plans of those men and folding those two tiny little local rulers, Herod and Pilate, two men who otherwise you would have never heard of, and their whole entourage into the Father's grand narrative of redemption as unwitting pawns in a plan to rescue folks, folks like us from every tribe and tongue and race and nation across eternity and make them a people for himself. And so that's why we're told today in Psalm thirty-three, twelve: blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Now, I'm sure in the psalmist's mind as he wrote that, he's probably thinking about Israel, uh, who who God had chosen as a a distinct people from all the other peoples of the earth. 
Uh, and in our century, we've used that in reference to America, right? And, and I think we can proudly claim that because, uh, for one, America has been the home of our congregational ancestors, the pilgrims, since 1640. Uh, I think we can also claim it because our country has uh, spawned the preaching of men like uh, John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, because our, our country has uh, seen the establishment of great seminaries like Harvard and, and Yale and Princeton Divinity School. Uh, and in large part because of the godliness of our founding fathers. So, you know, you'll a lot of times see Psalm 33, 12 being quoted in speeches on patriotic holidays and uh, found in posters and in artwork kind of superimposed over the American flag. And the implication of all of those things has been that uh, America now or, or Israel in earlier days was a godly nation. And in many ways that's been true. But I think we'd also have to admit that neither of those nations have been perfect nations, have they? Both have uh, often been pagan and disobedient and rebellious. But you know, in the midst of all of those, both of those nations were blessed by God because of the individual men and women who, who clung in complete confidence and trust to the Word of God. Men and women who faithfully came to worship on the Lord's Day to hear it expounded. Uh, men and women... Uh, who were influenced by it and who came to sing God's praises and participate in his sacraments and then who went back out into their communities to influence them. Because, see, that's really the people this verse is talking about. That, that's the nation that's been truly blessed. It's the one the Apostle Peter had in mind when he uh, wrote to two true believers of every age and said to them, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you see, the blessed nation of Psalm 33 isn't a physical country primarily, but it's the people of God. It's the body of Christ, those of every age who are redeemed from the wrath of God by the blood of his Son. And so the point of the psalmist here, like in the rest of today's text, is that we will only learn to com rely completely on the Lord when we see His power and His counsel and His sovereign plans. Plans that affect not just nature and not just nations, but ultimately are as intimate and intensely personal as the person that you look at in the mirror every morning. Because we're told in, in verse 13 today, the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Because you see, the psalmist here isn't picturing God as kind of looking down from a really tall building like we might do on, on people down below. And you maybe see them, but they're kind of distant, kind of blurry. You can't really see where they're all going, but he's affirming that God sees everyone on earth. He sees the woman bent over her rice paddy in Thailand. He sees the business executive at his desk on the 40th floor of the skyscraper in Manhattan. Uh, he sees our, our friends and our family who are far away, and he sees each and every individual who's sitting in this sanctuary right now. But more than seeing everyone, God knows everyone intimately. He knows what we're thinking in our hearts because He made them. And He understands not only what we do, but why we do it. And He knows whether we're really trusting in Him alone or not. 
And that's the reason uh, the next verse in the psalm says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. And you know, these people that God has His eye on aren't described as totally strong and self-sufficient, are they? These are people that need God. In fact, they're evidently in some real difficulty because it says they're facing famine and maybe even death. But that because they know that God is watching over them, that they know He's superintending everything that they do and actively delivering them, that they and we can be encouraged in any situation if our soul waits for the Lord. If He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. And you know, that really kind of brings us around to a close where we started out today with the central idea of this psalm, uh, and that is this, that people who have learned to be thankful and that people who want to know how to worship have to first have learned how to genuinely trust in God. You know, it's the same lesson that we've needed uh, as a people since the beginning of creation, to trust in God. Because isn't that always where the enemy attacks us? Right? You know, Satan's tactics never change. And they are to make us doubt God's word and to doubt God's goodness. Right? They're to, they're to kind of whisper in our ear, has God really said, does God really have your best interest at heart? Isn't God maybe holding out on you and keeping you from better things? Can you really trust him? Because sadly, Satan knows sometimes better than we that if you and I were to ever develop complete trust in God with a thankful and worshiping heart, that it changes lives, that it heals, hurts, and ultimately brings hope. And our enemy hates that. Because when those things are all bound up together and interconnected, they lead you and I by the power of the Holy Spirit to pray in the words of Psalm 33, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Even as we hope in your power, whether you save us from a situation or give us the strength to endure it. Even as we hope in your plans, knowing that all things may not be good, but that all things work for good to those that trust God and are called by his purpose. And even as we put our hope in his providence and his perfect love, leading us to a saving trust in the substitutionary atonement that is only found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen.